Right, uh, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, plenary sessions on uh, disruptive teaching uh, and so on. So I'm going to hand over to the four speakers, each of whom will speak for 20 minutes. After the break, we're resuming in space two, and that's for the questions and answers. But now it's over to speakers. Our first speaker is Mark Giesbrecht of Waterloo. Okay, so thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I was informed I traveled the farthest, um, but, uh, I'm, and I'm hoping I'll do some translation along the way because some of the terminology is different. Um, at the, I'm from the University of Waterloo from the, computer science, the School of Computer Science, and I'm the director and a professor there. Um, if you don't know where Waterloo is, it, it's usually not in quite such big print, but there's Toronto, and there's a picture of the university. It's about 5,600 kilometers from here, and it's about 100 kilometers west of Toronto, which is relevant, especially in terms of our student intake. Um, the university was established in 1957, so it's a relatively new university, even by Canadian standards. Um, computer science started in 1968, and the town around it has grown. It's um, now mostly... It's, university and something like 300 technology spin-off companies. So that's sort of the environment we're from. Uh, as I said, the school started in 1968 um, as part of the Faculty of Mathematics, which started about 10 years before. And in fact, just to relate it to um, Sue Black's fantastic talk, um, we stole one of your great combinatorists, Bill Tutt, to come to Waterloo in 1962, who turned out to be also one of your great code breakers and one of the people behind Colossus. So there is a, a, a connection there, and he was a professor in Waterloo until 2003 when he died. So the Cheriton School of Computer Science was founded in 2006. That was from an endowment. I think for here, the relevant things are that there are something like 3,700 undergraduates in computer science programs at the University of Waterloo, 350 grad students, um, around 100 faculty members. Um, that includes professors and lecturers, and a bit of translation here, when I say lecturer, I mean a non-research faculty member, so their jobs are teaching, whereas professors mean assistant, associate, and full professors, so they teach and they have a research complement. And I'm going to say that throughout, and I know the terminology here is different, that a lecturer here is more akin to an assistant professor in, in Canada. So. Um, as I said, um, we have a lot of students, so coming up on 4,000 students, depending on how you count these things. Um, we switched our, I'm going to say something about curriculum, but we switched our curriculum um, in around 2003-2004, um, and this was to create a much more flexible curriculum that currently has, I think those numbers are actually a little old, pretty close to 3,000 undergraduate students in it. And then we run a whole slew of other programs. Um, uh, which are considerably smaller. The relevant ones here, I think the biggest one is a software engineering program, uh, which has 580 students, and it's run, run much more like an engineering program. We actually run it with the Faculty of Engineering. Um, and, um, we, and we have a new data science program. And I, I think we hear the, the, the drumbeat of AI, 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 and so this is as close as we get to a, uh, a, an undergraduate program which meets those needs. Um, we also have some programs which are more problematic in that they're falling off the, the, the radar and not attracting the number of students. We expect bioinformatics never really caught fire and is heading down towards oblivion, um, as is computational mathematics. 
Um, so let me talk about student growth just because it affects the way we do things. Um, so this was in 2006. Is there a pointer there? There's no pointer there. Um, 2006, we had about 2,000 students. Um, we've gone up to about 35, pretty close to 4,000 students in 2018. This is the growth curve of faculty members right here. So we basically have done, you know, we've gone from 78 to 80 or something like that. In professorial faculty, we've added a few more lecturers, so instructional faculty members. But really, we're not meeting those, you know, that we're not serving the students quite properly. And uh, this is the applications. So this is the number of applications in 2006, which was the doldrums when I arrived as director of computer science. I got a report saying about the crisis in computer science. This is from 2006 of, of computer science enrollment. Here we are in 2018 with approximately um, eight, student number of growth, 80%, it's 800%, sorry. That, that's, there's a missing zero there. Um, so it's gone from something like um, 500 to something approaching 9,000 applications for the same number of positions in computer science. So these students are largely growing elsewhere. Anyway, so um, um, yeah, so I want to say something about our degree. Um, it, it is, it's not, I'm not going to be boastful here, but it is, it is the hardest school of computer science to get into in Canada. So if, you, if you're the, you know, our, we're taking the top students in the country to come to, to Waterloo, um, um, bar none. And so that says something about who we're attracting and who we're serving. Um, and, and combine that with the fact that we're taking a lot of them, we are not um, necessarily friends with all our peer institutions. So. Um, it's a very, very mathematical degree. We come out of a mathematics faculty. Um, this sort of infects everything we do. You have to have a lot of mathematics to get in. And all students are taking seven to 12 math courses along with the pure math students and the applied math students and the statistics students. So, and you know, and there were, there were wars fought to move it from 12 down to seven. So this is where we sort of, we sort of bottomed out at seven um, math courses for math people. And so this is now, we call this a thin core. Um, we have prescribed courses in first and second year. In first year, we have a couple of computer science courses. I'll say something in a second. And by the time, there's a, a collection of second year courses. And by the time you get to third year, you're only doing, there's two prescribed courses, algorithms and operating systems, and everything else is just sort of choose what you want. And I have a personal goal to lower this to one, actual prescribed course, but um, we'll, we'll, I, I, we'll get to that if we have time. Um, the philosophy has been flexibility in upper years, um, and math supports everything, especially um, in this world of data science and AI, where the students really need to be adept at mathematics um, to get in. Um, the other radical thing we did is around 2004, we introduced functional programming or scheme as the first course. Um, I don't, if you don't know scheme, it's worth taking a look. It's now called Racket. It changed its name um, for various funny reasons. Um, there's a wonderful textbook called How to Design Programs, um, which we sort of use now, though the notes have sort of evolved on our own. What is the rationale with this? The rationale is that no one has seen it before. Um, high school students in Canada, I don't know about here, have, we'll, we'll, we'll be polite and say a diverse collection of courses that they take in high school, calling themselves computer science. Um, these are, there's huge gender biases in the students that take computer science in high school. And 
we have very little correlation between performance in high school computer science courses and performance in university high school, university level courses. Um, what we find is we get much greater correlation between performance and uh, ability in high school mathematics courses. And so we don't even require computer science to get into computer science at Waterloo. We look almost exclusively at your, your, your uh, talents or abilities or interests in mathematics. Um, that said, I mean, most many of the students we do take have some kind of computer science to suggest that they're interested in the program. But nonetheless, uh, this is sort of an important uh, aspect to who's taking the courses, who's coming in. Um, and then we do something very jarring, which is we take these students who have done, worked in this pure functional language in this beautiful programming environment, and we teach them C programming, which is brutal. And um, they all find it such. Um, and not only that, we try to teach C programming in a way that sort of teaches them about very deeply about the memory model and sort of the nuts and bolts about the interface between software and the computer. And so um, I think it does what we want. It's very difficult for the students. And the transition from something friendly, and Scheme is weird, but it is friendly to C, is, is a, I think, a crisis point for some of the for the students we're getting in. And as I said, these are great students coming in. Um, I don't want to take, belabor the, the curriculum too much, but as I said, second year is, is very intense and very prescribed. But this is the computer science part of it. The other half of this is the math half. And so students tend to take computer science, computer science, computer science, computer science, computer science, and then math, 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 math. And then they have an option and the, I don't know whether it is a sad thing or a great thing is that they tend to take their option being either computer science or math. So, you know, that's where, that's where we are. Um, somewhere along the way, they have to take a couple of communications courses. Now, what is also so sort of, I think, unique about Waterloo Experience is what we call co-op ex education or experiential education. Um, right now, about 85% of our students are in co-op. And what co-op means is that every second term, they are out in the workforce or the research force or something like that. They are off campus, usually in a different location, uh, working for a company. So this is what a typical schedule will look like. So a student will choose one of these three things, and then every, you notice the W, that's a work term. So 1A, 1B, and then W, and then 2A, W, 2B, W, 3A, W. So they're, they're constantly on campus, off campus, on campus, off campus. And now how does this work? Well, the, the, um, the co-op office brings um, employers to campus. The students apply on a big electronic system to go to interviews, and we have this dance of, of sort of everybody connecting with everybody, hopefully. And so how does this work? Now let me talk a little bit about scale just for a second. Um, Co-op is run, I think necessarily, as a completely separate unit of the university. This is the organizational unit. Um, there are, in 2018, 2,303 computer science students went out into the workforce and came back. Um, it, this is now across campus. It sort of grew out of computer science and math, but now it's across campus, it's about 22,000 students go out and come back in any one term. Um, there were 814 employers came in 
and uh, every um, basically this this unit on campus now dominates all our curricular development, our program development. Because if we develop a program, it's almost certainly going to be a co-op program, and it will almost have to certainly have to talk to the um, to the um, to the co-op office. So. We regard this, just going back to this, as a really essential part of the educational experience that people are getting. So a computer scientist, go, they come in, they may take some theory courses, they may take things which are disconnected, and then they go away for a term. And you know, at this stage, we've frankly got the, the employers trained. They will take a student you know, who's only finished first year and do something relatively interesting with them. Um, the benefits when we, that we see in the students when they come back, even when you're teaching something not you know, practical, as they say, oh, I've seen that algorithm before. I needed that. I needed this in, the, in, my, in, my, uh, um, in what I was doing. It also pays the bills. So, I mean, they pay, the co-op employers are paying these students well. If they go to California, I'll say they're paying them ridiculously well. But uh, it is, it is, the system is sort of entrenched and working extremely well. So, um, so that, that's co-op. I wanted to say something else about uh, um, class sizes and delivery. We made a hard decision, and I think it's the right decision, that all classes would be capped. Um, officially, the cap is 100. We try to keep students, every, every classroom down to 90 students. What was generally felt, we had been teaching classes sort of in the 300 to 400 to whatever the room could fit, and the students didn't show up and didn't get it. And so we made a hard decision to do this. Why was it hard? You saw the flat line of, of faculty growth, faculty member growth. We don't have the people to teach this. So we are ramping up considerably on our, our, our lecturer, our instructor category of faculty member. And uh, we also hire a lot of what we'll call sessionals. These are usually postdocs um, or um, instructional support staff, I'll talk about in a second, things like this. So we'll be running in any one term something like, um, I don't have them here, something like 16 parallel sessions of first year computer science for computer scientists, another 16 for non-computer scientists. So they'll be on the order of 30 to 35 sessions of computer science going on, sometimes at exactly the same time in a different building, in a different classroom, sometimes right beside each other. And the, student, the, the courses are in approximate lockstep. So same exams, or at least within the same course, they'll have the same exams, set same assignments, things like that. And so the upside is they're small classes. As a teacher, this is great. You get up, you actually see the students. Students tend to sit in the same spots. Uh, the students are far more engaged. And um, we find in general it's less biased towards students with technical experience because they're much likely, more likely to put up their hand and ask questions or come to you later and ask questions as a human being. Uh, the downside is it's a logistical nightmare and uh, it's under severe stress because of increasing enrollments. How does this all work? We actually had another group, a staff group called the Instructional Support Group. This is eight full-time staff members. Most of them have a background or in master's or PhD in computer science, and they basically coordinate the, you know, the, the hundred or so TAs who are teaching or helping to coordinate first year, or the, you know, making sure the exams actually make sense, sometimes correcting the professors on the exams, things like that. So this is a wonderful thing. I would highly recommend it to everybody. 
Okay, so I'm not going to talk about this, and I'm not going to talk about this. I do want to talk a bit about women in computer science, because this is one of the things that we've been, we've been working with a lot. Um, this has been a huge effort um, in, in uh, Waterloo, as I think it has been every, everywhere. Um, we have had a lot of demand, at least on, on the face of it, from, uh, um, from companies saying we need more female graduates. And we've had an interesting phenomenon. So in Canada, the numbers were somewhere, and I think Waterloo was no different than anywhere else, maybe a little worse, actually, because we, are, we tend to be a very technically oriented university. We draw from a very particular demographic. And our numbers were somewhere around 12% as the percentage of students in computer science. Now, I like to think that this corresponds to when we really started the effort, and um, it's not quite true. Nonetheless, we, the, the numbers have gone from 12% um, up to something like 23% today. And that has been an awful lot of work. So we actually have created a director position um, in, the, um, in computer science to oversee all the initiatives we have. We're always trying new things. Um, some work, some don't. Um, we're constantly um, working with how to, how, how to increase enrollment. There were slides I skipped about how we were working in the um, K-12, meaning the high school education, to make this, you know, to, to make sure that they're seeing what we think of computer science and not sort of the um, game, video games for boys, which had been where computer science in high school had gone. And I think that, though, and, and essentially all male classrooms. And so this, there's been a significant shift, um, you know, at Waterloo in particular. And there is, when you get to these numbers, you're sort of looking at death spiral territory. You know, it's not too far from that to going to something like 3 to 4%, which is what happened at, um, in some of the engineering um, units. Now, this is exactly the same slide, but I did a trick here. Of course, this one had, I made it look really good by saying 25%. Um, 25% is 23% still really low, and so we still have an awful lot to do um, in terms of attracting women. And now I also should say that Waterloo, we run a direct entry system. So students in computer science are by and large students who chose out of high school to come to computer science. So, um, this is a place where we, we have done, uh, um, you know, done relatively well in sort of making sure that we were, by, by, for example, relaxing the computer science prerequisites by selecting on math, not computer science. And the final thing I'll say is something about demographics um, in, of, our, of our population. Um, we have a lot of, of uh, international students. Now, in, in, you know, it's... Uh, percentage of first-generation people in Canada in general, in the area we're in, southern Ontario, is probably north of 40%. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, visible minorities in the program. I would say, well, I know the majority, but um, we also take a lot of international students who may be students who have gone to high school in Canada, but they're, they're on visas. And so that number has also gone up dramatically from around 12% to around... 25% echoing the curve in female students. And one of the more interesting things is the percentage of women in this group is substantially higher. And we find that interesting and certainly not, uh, not a bad thing at all. And so this has both benefits and caveats. I'll let you read them. Um, 
One of the hardest here has been, in fact, admission criteria. When you are looking at a foreign transcript, how do you actually make a decision? One of the motivations, well, motivations I think are for the international experience. I have to admit another motivation here is funding. We do well by these students, as I assume you do here as well. Um, we have been talking about the AI programs just because we have been hit over the head with doing it. Here we have a great advantage. And I have a great advantage is that we are in a faculty of mathematics and what is an AI or data science program if not a combination of uh, statistics and um, optimization and computer science. And effectively we've relabeled our combined degree in statistics and, and computer science as an AI program. Online program, not a place we've gone terribly far. We have an online master's program and we have some online courses which we are starting, but I'm interested in hearing what people here have done with more innovative classroom descriptions and online. And with that, thank you for your uh, questions. And thank you for your attention and questions later. Okay. And our next speaker is Mark Smith from Ada College. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Smith. Uh, I'm the CEO, uh, CEO and co-founder um, of Ada, uh, the National College for Digital Skills. We're the first um, brand new further education uh, college in England since 1993 um, and uh, the government's um, new national college um, for digital skills. Um, and we opened our doors uh, just, just under three years ago now um, in September 2016. Um, so I'm going to talk uh, for 20 minutes. A little bit about the why and the how of ADA. Um, many of you, uh, I imagine, have already worked out why we're uh, called ADA, um, named after Ada Lovelace, um, which gives a hint uh, to one of our social missions around incre increasing the number of women in tech. Um, the other is perhaps our location um, in Tottenham Hale, um, and therefore very much aimed at serving um, uh, those students who come from low-income backgrounds and households. Um, so a little bit about what we stand for, our operating model, um, our approach, um, and then a little bit about what's going to come next as well. So many people assume um, the college was set up uh, to address um, what people call the digital skills gap, um, this huge need from industry uh, for over 100,000 um, new uh, people coming through the education system uh, to fill the digital skills shortage that the UK has um, and that is incredibly well documented now. Um, the reality is, um, for me, um, I set up the college um, because of this young man, um, Matthew Banjo. Matthew came from Newcross, uh, which is just south of uh, uh, the River Thames in, in London, um, from a very humble background. Um, and when I met Matthew, he'd just finished his GCSEs and done very well for himself um, and was just starting to study computer science A-level. Unfortunately, um, he bombed out. He started failing his computer science A-level, uh, mainly because he knew more than his teacher did. Um, and I started to look for a tutor for him. Um, many of you may know that tutoring is big business in London these days. Uh, and I couldn't find a computer science A-level tutor for him in the whole of Greater London. Um, this is back in 2013. And I found that a little bit odd, um, coming from an education background as a teacher and having set up a mentoring um, and tutoring program uh, in the past. Um, uh, I started looking into this area a little bit more. And I went one day to a day with Google um, and uh, Teach First where I heard two statistics. In 2013, only 3,700 students nationally studied computing A-level, um, only 375 in Greater London, and only seven women, seven young women from low-income households in the entire country studied computer science A-level 
um, back in 2013. And then on the flip side, um, this huge, this huge skill shortage and over 100,000 vacancies in the digital skills sector. A couple of graphs to illustrate that. You can see the decline in numbers. This graph only goes up to 2013. Fortunately, um, that was the low point and the numbers have started to tick up a little bit since then. Um, but I think it's instructive nonetheless. Um, and also um, some stats um, and quotes from the uh, very insightful annual, now annual University of Roehampton um, computing education report uh, put together by uh, Peter Kemp um, and his team there that provides some fantastic insights into computing education um, in, in English schools at the current time. So we can see with GCSEs, um, that unfortunately um, the rate of students starting to take GCSE computer science has slowed in recent years and that is compounded by the fact that the government has now removed the ICT GCSE um, from uh, the main headline league table um, progress eight um, figures. Um, so that unfortunately suggests the number of total number of students sitting GCSE computing or digital related uh, subjects is slowing down quite radically. Um, more positively is that on the A-level uh, side, uh, there has been an increase in the last four years, uh, particularly since the reinvigorated computer science A-levels has come in. However, that is still from a fairly low base. So still looking at just over 7,000 students nationally studying computer science A-level, um, which is a, a doubling from those figures in 2017, uh, sorry, 2013, um, when I first started looking into it, but still uh, a way to go. Um, and that obviously doesn't include any of the figures around the BTEC as well, um, which I'll go on to talk about in a little bit. Uh, in terms of gender parity in schools, um, unfortunately, um, girls continue to be heavily underrepresented um, as the students from low income backgrounds. Um, so while um, Dr. Sue Black earlier said, you know, there is significant cause for optimism, and I would tend to agree with her, there does seem to be a huge amount of effort going into getting um, a more diverse student body studying computer science. Unfortunately, in schools, um, we've still got a major problem, and that doesn't bode well for the flow through um, to higher education um, and um, uh, and obviously then through into the workforce. Um, so a lot of work to be done um, to address that. Put very starkly, when people talk about the gap, I tend to use these six statistics. So it's 1.64 million tech jobs in the UK, uh, digital sector growing twice as fast as non-digital sectors. 75% um, of businesses report skill shortage. They reckon that adds up um, the Office for National Statistics, something around £63 billion annual loss in GDP due to the digital skills gap. Um, and yet only half of schools um, now offer a digital GCSE um, and a third of computer science teacher uh, vacancies are unfilled in schools at the current time. Um, that's a bit of a problem. However, um, Having said that, you know, um, there's some fantastic analysis from the British Computing Society that came out last year. A really nice little report. You can just look it up on Google, moving on up. Um, that shows that IT really is a tool for social mobility um, for young people. Um, it's a statistically rigorous study using ONS data um, that shows that the IT profession offers more social mobility than traditional professions like medicine and law. Um, and that is not just short-term social mobility, it is long-range social mobility as well. Um, and that 75% of IT professionals um, have experienced upward social mobility compared to their parents. To put that in context for me, how it came to life was talking to Matthew. 
about his opportunities for the future. And he was adamant that if he could get a job as an entry-level software developer in a tech company, he'd be earning somewhere in the region of about £30,000 a year or two out of university. And for him, that would be transformative for his life chances. He, came, he was like, I want to be able to support my mum, I want to be able to support my sister, um, and I want to do well for myself. And if I can use the skills that I know I have, then I know I can transform not only my life chances, but also those of my family as well. And there's all these jobs out there, I just don't quite know how I'm going to go about getting from where I am now, failing my computer science A-level, through to one of these entry-level jobs that's going to transform my life chances. And I thought to myself... It's just really odd that there's not enough people studying tech subjects, uh, tech subjects at school when the UK economy and the way our society is going is, is relentlessly driven by digital innovation and, and disruption. And I said, could we design a new college that would take students on a journey from 16 years old, once they finish their GCSEs, all the way through to a good quality entry-level job in the tech sector, not pay any university-related tuition fees necessarily, but give them the opportunity to get a degree um, and really get on um, with a positive career and go on and lead a flourishing lives more broadly. For me, it was very much about bridging this divide between education and employment and creating a college that could allow a student to walk across this bridge. So our vision at ADA is an education system um, that provides a sustainable pipeline of high quality diverse digital talent into the tech sector and that translates through to a mission that is to work with industry to design and deliver an education that empowers all of our students, particularly those from low income households and particularly young women um, to access high quality jobs in the digital sector and lead flourishing lives more broadly. For us, those social mission goals mean uh, manifest themselves in two targets that by July 2022, we have 50% of our students from low-income households and 50% as young women. We talk a lot about being a centre of excellence for the teaching and learning of advanced digital skills. I wouldn't say we're, we're necessarily there yet, but we're well on the way um, to um, starting to become that centre of excellence being an engine of social mobility, using tech as a tool for social mobility and being that bridge between education and employment. How do we do that? We have two main aspects to the college. We have a sick form for 16 to 18 year olds um, and then we run higher level and degree level apprenticeships post 18. So fairly small at the moment, just in Tottenham Hale, soon to open a small campus in Whitechapel and hopefully um, expand outside of London in the near future. We've got about 136 form students, 86% of which are going on to their first choice destination um, from our first graduating cohort. We've got 150 plus apprentices. Um, that'll roughly be uh, about 300 um, by the end of the year. Um, uh, a decent sized teaching faculty now. Um, and across the college, it's about 25% um, female students. Um, for our apprenticeship programs, that's just above a third now. Um, it's almost double the industry average. Um, and 50% uh, are already coming from low-income backgrounds. These are um, our industry partners, and probably um, our USP as a college is the level of industry engagement um, that we have, um, both uh, in terms of philanthropic support for the college, but also, um, much more importantly, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, involved in the teaching and learning um, of our apprentices and our sixth form students in the classroom, um, and uh, in the workplace as well.
best thing about going to a college that you know focuses on computer science or something that I'm interested in. You get to meet people who are also interested in the same thing that you are. You don't really feel alone because in secondary school I used to feel like, oh cool, I'm the only person interested in you know tech. But here everyone's interested in it. My passion is creativity and the way Ada helped me pursue it is I study graphics. That's where I really showcase my abilities and how I implement creativity in every aspect of my work. I think what makes Ada special is the people and everyone's different. Everyone's interested in different things, but we're all interested in technology. And one more. I found out about Ada while applying for another apprenticeship to Sky. I found an advert saying that Ada was looking for people to come in and it was a new college so I thought I'd try it because it's new and it's about tech and that's what I was in. I think it's pretty unique and it helped kind of develop the skills that you need and they allow you to network and meet new people. So my passion is um, programming so I like to create stuff like apps, websites, software but now it's shifted more to artificial intelligence and machine learning. My next steps for the future is to do an apprenticeship at Google and hopefully turn that into a job and a career. So while we're only just getting going, what we find is that there are an incredible number of young people out there who have a passion for technology. What they don't know is how to then turn that into a set of useful knowledge that will allow them to get meaningful qualifications, but obviously then go on and access employment um, and um, uh, long-term successful careers. And it's really that bridge um, that we seek to provide with the two programs that we offer. So we started out, uh, myself and my co-founder, Tom, um, looking at all these um, books, um, uh, starting with Seymour Papert, um, Mindstorm's books, which may be, may be well known to all, uh, some of you, um, which had an incredible impact on me, um, and then trying to look at you know, some of these um, uh, soothsaying books that look into the future and predict what life 3.0 or the fourth industrial revolution might look like. Um, and we came out with a lot of these kind of uh, grandiose theories um, about how we would um, uh, teach our students. Um, but in actual fact, um, we very quickly um, returned back to our mission and said, actually, what does that mean to us? And we broke that out into a number of different ways. So we work like industry, we support independence in our students, we value diversity, we care about character, and we offer aspirational pathways in all that we do. And that is the kind of themes that run through our pedagogy um, and our curriculum on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'll talk a little bit about our sixth form to begin with and how we um, marry um, academic stretch with practical rigor, um, and then talk a little bit about our higher level and degree level apprenticeships as well. Um, so we talk a lot about technical, creative and entrepreneurial skill sets um, and the mindset, skill sets and networks um, that all of our students and apprentices need in order to be successful. Um, and increasingly, we see an intermingling of the two. Um, so we offer um, a computer science BTEC um, that every single student um, studies uh, in our SIP form and then complementary A-levels um, that broadly align to those creative, technical and entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, categories. Um, and then at the end, we are very explicit about being agnostic about where our students go on to. Obviously, we run our own um, apprenticeship programs, um, but uh, many of our students do go on to university, the majority, in fact, from our first cohort. Um, many of them are um, hopefully going to be coming into some of um, the uh, 
universities that um, are represented here today um, in the autumn uh, from our second cohort, and the majority of them go into computer science or computer science related courses. Um, many of them with unconditional offers, um, which uh, just so you know, is really demotivational for students. Um, uh, and I really would ask, um, as an aside, that um, not too many uh, um, departments start offering um, unconditional offers. We are seeing a real increase, um, and that is a real challenge for us. Um, uh, but yes, uh, we have some that go straight away, uh, just one or two each year to do their own startups, um, and a number that go into full-time employment. And we've got a couple of students that were hired straight out of school last year um, and are working uh, as entry-level software developers in full-time roles, um, earning well over 30K, which is a pretty incredible salary for an 18-year-old to be opening, earning. Um, okay, I'm on five minutes, so I've got to gallop through this. Um, we don't offer the A-level computer science um, because we find it very limiting. Um, we find the B-tech in computer science um, much more um, engaging for our student and a well-rounded qualification. Um, we do a lot of project-based learning um, with our different uh, employer partners. Um, and a lot of just um, involvement in the classroom on a day-to-day -day basis as well. Um, these two gentlemen, one is now uh, Deloitte as a tech consultant, the others just started as a data analyst at Siemens um, as well. Um, and then moving on to our higher level and degree level apprenticeships. Um, I was reading a book by Barnaby Lennon the other day, a really good new book that's just come out called Other People's Children. And it talks about how um, there isn't as much opportunity now um, for working class students to obtain what he terms middle class jobs. I think tech um, debunks that statement. I think there are amazing opportunities for students from tougher backgrounds if they've got the passion for technology and such is the scale of the job shortages, uh, the skill shortages at the moment that I do believe there is that real opportunity, um, particularly for high, uh, technical apprentices um, to change their life chances um, through the tech sector. So we run three main um, uh, apprenticeship programs, um, a dedicated software developer program, a dedicated data analyst program, um, and just now we're launching a, te a tech consultant program as well um, uh, for those that are interested. We design our own degree programs and they're validated by the Open University, who we have a really um, useful working relationship with. Um, and we offer either two-year courses with the potential to convert through onto a full degree apprenticeship um, or a straight three-year degree apprenticeship program. All of our both our degree programs um, and our day-to-day -day pedagogy is focused around how do we prepare um, for our apprenticeship programs, how do we prepare our um, apprentices to succeed on day one um, when they land with industry. And I think that is one of the big differences between us as an FE college um, and perhaps a university. Whereas a university, you know, the remit of a university, the underlying rationale for a university is about academic excellence, research and rigour. Us, we can be very explicit about our focus on preparing young people for um, success in their job once they arrive. And I do think if you start with that as a guiding principle, you maybe come to a slightly different outcome in terms of both the content and the method of delivery um, and the focus of delivery um, of um, your degree programmes. So try to use um, uh, industry's tools on a day-to-day -day basis in the classroom. Again, you know, I think this is happening in many university classrooms that I observe and see on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but I do hope um, that we are maybe pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, all, of our, uh, all of our lecturers are former software developers. They all have to have at least three years of industry experience in order to be able to teach at the college. 
Um, and then we do have a head of degree programs who provides the um, academic rigor and framework to all that we do to make sure um, we adhere to all the QAA standards as well. Um, and just a huge amount of industry engagement in that teaching and learning as well. So everyone who comes and is involved, we take a, a very small Polaroid picture. Rashid's got his up on the wall as well, I believe, somewhere now um, at the college. Um, and, and believe in making sure that all of our students and apprentices are having at least one meaningful engagement per week with an industry partner. So that could be them involved in delivering a lesson or a session. It could be through one-to-one -one coaching that many of our sixth form students and apprentices have. Um, it could be through uh, working on an industry project or an industry brief um, and then getting feedback at the end of that brief. Um, but making sure as an unwritten rule that that's happening on a weekly basis um, allows us to be confident that students are exposed to a range of different industries and different types of ways of using their technical skills um, and then can make those informed decisions about their future. What sets us apart then is the quality of teaching and learning, the focus on our social mission and the meaningful industry, uh, meaningful, meaningful, <laughs> meaningful involvement of industry um, on a day-to-day day -day basis in our classroom delivery. In terms of the future, um, we are just starting to talk about that now. Um, we've got to a stage where we're not really a startup anymore um, and we're just moving into, a, I guess, a new stage of growth and looking at what our strategy should be from uh, July 2019 for the next three years. Certainly that will involve volume growth. Um, our aspiration is very much that involves geographic growth. Um, we just finished a completed a feasibility study about um, opening a campus here in Manchester uh, and we'd love to talk to anyone in the room who's interested in, in talking more about that. Um, we would, are very keen to help address that early statistic that I pointed out about the shortage of computer science teachers in schools and, and we'll help to um, do our own computer science teacher training soon but also lecture training for FE colleges um, and potentially universities as well. Um, and finally, all of that is going to involve an increased amount of partnership work and outreach work. Um, so again, very keen to, to talk to anyone um, this afternoon, this evening and, and hopefully tomorrow um, who uh, might be interested in learning more or talking further. We talk a lot about being Ada being about possibilities, um, about being a college for the future, um, not just our future, um, but also our future, the future of our students. I genuinely believe tech can be a transformative tool for social mobility um, and it is just about finding that bridge um, between education and employment for young people. Thanks very much. Good afternoon everyone. My name's Amali. I am the chief exec of an organisation called Code First Girls. Um, we've been running for about four years. We are a social enterprise, a revenue generating social enterprise. And we have one mission, and that is to help get more women into tech. Um, now, I know some of my, my previous colleagues and speakers have kind of talked to this a little bit, but I guess looking at that UK landscape, this is something we, this, there is a burning bridge here, right? The UK has 170 billion in turnover, which is coming from digital organizations. Tech investment in the UK is an all-time high. The average salary within tech roles is significantly higher than the UK national average. Um, and this is something which, you know, of all the different industries we have in the UK, is making a gigantic contribution um, to the UK economy. There 
is a huge number of digital jobs already existing in the UK. So we're talking around 1.6 million uh, different job roles, according to uh, Tech Nation numbers here. And it is a fast-growing industry. And I know, you know, we've heard a couple of points there mentioned about the digital skills gap. It is real. And depending on where you look at it, we are talking in the numbers of hundreds of thousands of tech and digital jobs which are going unfulfilled in the UK. And these are well-paid jobs in the fastest growing areas of our economy. If we look at the software industry and the, I guess, the gender diversity points around that, um, the numbers aren't terribly rosy in that. Um, Looking at ONS data, we're looking at around 11.6% of the UK software workforce being women. And I think that's pretty stark when you think about how much of a foundation technology is to all of our organisations these days. And how do we increase diversity in those, those people who are creating those products? I'm an ex-quant researcher. I used to be hired by companies like Unilever or Colgate um, to go and understand how do we create better products and services. And hands down, one of the best ways to create better products and services is by having a diversity of people who are being involved in the creation of those services. You know, rather than having to just go out and spend millions of pounds on research, have the people who are going to be using those products actually feeding into how you develop those as well. When we look at the education element of that, so these are the numbers according to the UCAS data sets for last year. In the UK, we had 27,400 individuals who joined for a computer science degree in the UK. Now, of that, only 13%, 13.7% were women. So we're talking about 3,750 individuals who were women who did a computer science undergrad degree. And I guess contrasting that with the picture which we had previously around this idea that we have hundreds of thousands of jobs which need filling, it doesn't take a mathematician to understand that not only do we just not have the numbers going in, the proportion of people who are coming from a diversity background is also really small in that. And if you're thinking about all of our companies across the UK who are trying to hire tech talent and saying that they want to hire diverse tech talent, if those companies are saying we only accept people with a degree background, we can already see that 3,750 is not going to get us very far in those hundreds of thousands of jobs. So what do we do as CoFirst Girls and what do we think is the, the challenge around that? So this is actually some information from the Tech Nation recent um, research, uh, the Tech Nation report. The reality is that when we start having conversations with young women around what types of careers do they envisage for themselves, technology isn't playing a big part. So if we ask young men, what kind of fields would you be wanting to work in in the future? Technology is up there right at the top. And yet when we talk to women around what types of jobs do you want to have, you know, professors, creative and design, starting your own business. These are the kinds of things that are appealing to young women ahead of technology. Um, so there is a challenge around not only, you know, how do we find these people, but how do we appeal to these people as well? How do we uh, draw in young women, help them understand what types of careers that they can have with a technology, uh, with a technology background, um, and actually help them understand how exciting that is and how valuable they are to the industry? And as far as Code First Girls goes, our view is very much that we can't just do this as individuals. 
We have to be working together on this. So we work with universities, we work with apprenticeship providers, we work with other um, training providers, um, as well as uh, corporate training programs as well. Because I think, and this is one of the reasons why I got involved with the IFC, is we all have a role to play in this. And the only way that we get to that point where we are actually filling that pipeline full of the types of tech talent that we need for our, our UK businesses is by working together um, and realising that we all have a responsibility to play in that equation and understanding better how we can work with each other as well. When we talk about Code First Girls part in that, one of the big things that we do is we run free coding courses. So we run coding courses uh, across the UK and Ireland to young women of employable age. So we're generally talking about late teens, early 20s, um, and we run those at um, university course, at university hosts. So uh, we have universities from Aberdeen to Southampton, Dublin, Belfast, Bristol, Bath, Leeds, Newcastle, Manchester, who all very kindly host our free coding courses for young women. Um, we also run corporate coding courses. So we'll go into companies, uh, we'll actually run these courses for their staff, for men and for women, as well as our professionals courses, which are around training more established female professionals, how the basics of coding so that they can understand more about how they can use this within their jobs as well. We also build a big community. So we uh, run events, we run our annual conference, um, and over the last four years, we've built a community of over 8,000 women who are interested and in doing work as far as in digital, in, in coding, in technology. Um, and we help them to basically not only see what the opportunities are like and sort of demystify the industry, but we also help them to meet each other. Because one of the biggest challenges, this point around how do I feel supported going along this journey, is finding others who are going along the journey with them and actually helping them to understand what that process looks like. And then the last part of what we do is we work with companies. And I guess this goes back to that roots of our mission, which is to help get more women into tech. This isn't just about training the individuals. It's also about supporting the companies. Because what use is it to bring someone up to the point where they have an education in coding, they have background, they have experience, but the companies who are willing to hire them or able to hire them aren't ready to receive them and offer them a great working experience. And I'm really pleased to say that we've been very successful. So over the last four years, we have delivered coding courses to over 8,000 young women across the UK. Last semester, that equated to 3,200 women who went on our courses. Um, and we held 137 free coding courses across the UK with a volunteer instructor community um, of around uh, 140 plus software individuals. We did this with a HQ team of seven and a budget over the last four years of probably about one and a half million, which means that for every pound in revenue that we have taken, and we, we, we are a revenue generating company, we work with companies, we offer services, uh, and we then basically use those profits to, to run our free courses. Um, for every pound of revenue that we have received, we have additionally delivered four pounds worth of free coding courses. So that 8,000 young women who have been taught to code, that equates to about five and a half million pounds worth of free coding education. And our alum have gone on to do some pretty amazing things. 
Not all of them go on to become software developers, but quite a few of them do. And we've had them joining companies ranging from Facebook to Google, The Guardian. We had one who joined NASA as a robotics intern, Accenture, Twitter, Pivotal Labs, List. This is just a you know, small selection of some of the organizations who have benefited from these amazing individuals who have said, you know, I felt like I'd missed the boat. Here's something which helped me get back into a stream that I thought had been closed to me um, and enable them to actually have some really exciting jobs as well. Thinking about how we can work with you, um, myself and actually my head of communities, Eva, who is here uh, somewhere in the, in the conference as well, we can work with everyone. And going to that point around collaboration, all of this is around how do we work with everyone to actually reach that common goal. With universities, with apprenticeship providers, we can come and run coding courses at your organizations. So these are hosted at your organizations. And even for corporates, we run these with companies ranging from Bank of America to Twitter through Level 39. They all very kindly provide us with space to actually run these amazing courses. And then we also support the companies themselves. So we can run bespoke programs, we can train your own staff, we can help you to understand more around how you manage your talent uh, within the tech sphere. But it's all about bringing all of those different sides together to enable us to create better opportunities for young women who are looking to pursue careers in tech and digital. And just, I guess, to, to wrap up a few examples, so a few case studies. Um, this young woman uh, named Malike, um, she very recently actually won a, an amazing award for uh, being one of the top fintech professionals in the UK. She joined our courses about three years ago. She was actually originally studying economics. She had never done a coding course before. And she came up to me. This was a picture taken at one of our events, which we hosted at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. And she came up to me after the session and said, Amali, we've never met before. Um, I just wanted to kind of just come and introduce myself. My name is Malike. I was studying economics. I'd never done anything around tech before. I came and did a tech, uh, one of your coding courses at level 39, and it just really inspired me, it got me excited. So I've decided that this is, this is an industry I want to follow, and I've actually just written a book about the fintech industry in Turkey. And she literally hands me this book, and I think it was that moment which I realized how much of an impact just a little bit of help, a little bit of support can have. We can't deliver the whole story, but we can get people excited about it. And then together, we can actually help them deliver different parts of that journey to enable them to come uh, and go through these kinds of experiences. Um, this is Clarice. Um, so again, Clarice joined us probably about four years ago. Um, she came to us actually having studied philosophy uh, and she was working at a food uh, startup at the time. She had never done any coding before. She did our courses. She got really inspired. Um, she went and did further teaching, uh, further learning. And then she ended up actually joining a switching master's degree at UCL. So again, a different pathway, a different way kind of through a program. And she's now currently looking at doing a PhD in VR and psychology. So bringing together those really practical things around the things that she found exciting and enabling her to go on and do further studies. And this is Dolly. So Dolly came to us actually, um, again, at one of our corporate courses. Um, she had originally come from a, a journalism background. She had never done any coding before. Um, she came to us and just got really excited about coding and technology. Um, so she decided to go on and do a further course. She did a, an intensive boot camp. Um, she then decided to specialize in UX design. And she's currently working as a UX designer um, as a, at a company as well. So again, these individuals who had never considered these types of careers, who are now being enabled to switch and find different routes to that switching as well. 
And then finally, just, I guess, talking to the way that we, I guess, work with companies and, and do that recruitment um, side as well. So VT approached us about um, a year ago uh, around this challenge of how do we actually uh, hire more women into our, into our company, into our tech teams. Um, and they run some really fantastic programs. They run apprenticeship programs, they run graduate programs, um, but they just didn't have enough women applying. So we decided to basically come together. Code First Girls, we've just wrapped it up. We delivered a four-month intensive boot camp for them. We did not only the delivery of the content, and it was very much in line with BT's own stack, how they work, what kind of things they needed in those individuals. Um, but we also did the recruitment. So for this program where we had 29 students who ended, eventually ended up joining the cohort, we had 187 applications from young women from our community. And for BT, BT have never had 187 women apply for one of their junior tech roles before. So going to that point around the power of you know, bringing our communities together, what BT said to us was, if we have 29 successful graduates, we will have 29 guaranteed job offers. And I'm delighted to say that as of this month, 21 of those women will be starting to work within software development roles at BT um, across the UK. So Ipswich, Cardiff, Belfast, all over. I guess just a final thing around, and, and this is just a number with that, a final thing around, um, you know, the, the diversity angle within the diversity angle as well. This is our BT cohort. We have young women here who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. We have young women here who have done PhDs. They learn alongside each other and consider each other companions, fellow students, and learn from each other as well. Um, the reason that we are able to appeal to these young women is because we do a hands-on course, it is practical, we don't have any exams, but also we just help them to understand what this could look like, how could it look like to them, what are the types of exciting things they could do, um, and do that in a really practical way where they don't feel that the types of barriers that they might have felt previously should be a barrier to them still continuing these types of careers in the future. Um, and if you are interested as far as um, even sort of wider community and that sort of sweet point between companies and education institutions and ourselves, obviously the IOC is doing a lot of work in this space, um, but also people like Tech Talent Charter, which are focusing on um, employability within um, the tech sector and how do we increase diversity there as well. Thank you very much. And our last speaker before the break is Olivier, who comes to us from the Ecole 42 uh, School of Thought, and will talk to us about that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my name is Olivier. I'm the head of pedagogy of 42, uh, and I'm going to uh, explain to you our uh, pedagogical experiment we are doing in Paris. 42 is an IT school, information technology school. We are located in, in Paris. And um, we have a student uh, starting at 80 years old, um, and it has been created by Xavier Niel. Maybe you know Xavier, he's a French telecom tycoon. He's the owner of one of the four telecom companies in France, and he's very well known from all the French tech uh, ecosystem. Why did he decide to create 42? Well, um, actually, um, in France, I would say um, we have a problem. We are usually known as the sixth world economy or the seventh world economy. Um, but, uh, and this is usually uh, because we did well um, during the previous industrial revolution. 
unfortunately, this is actually not our ranking regarding the e-economy. We are at the 25th rank, and it's actually lowering, so it's uh, not very good. And uh, France is not the uh, only uh, country in this case. I think that uh, from the previous presentation, uh, we heard a lot about uh, the huge lack of IT professionals all over Europe. And um, so Xavier Niel was facing this uh, lack of IT professional. And uh, as a owner of one of the telecom companies in France, uh, he wanted to uh, uh, hire some uh, IT professional uh, with uh, very specific skills. But unfortunately, he was not finding this kind of profiles. And he was not finding this kind of profiles. Well, our analysis here is that we have a disconnection between what offers the public French education system and what's needed by actually the society and the companies. Um, today, I would say that, uh, well, our uh, public education system is still connected and are still dedicated to the previous industrial revolution. And we are looking now um, some uh, skills that are connected to the digital revolution. Um, for example, um, companies nowadays are looking for uh, collaboration. And unfortunately, collaboration is still called cheating in the classroom. Um, also, um, I think that we have a very uh, cloning mechanism in public uh, education today when uh, people have the same uh, degree, well, they used to uh, solve the same kind of problem using the same kind of solution. And today, inside company, if you want to have some innovation, well, you need diversity, you need creativity, and that's not provided by the public education system. Also, I would like to say that today, IT has a key role in companies. 20 years ago, uh, IT was only an automation process of an already existing chain of value inside a company. Today, IT changed business models. IT changed the way you are doing your own business, the way you are making money. So that's how Uber, Airbnb, and Facebook, Twitter uh, are coming. And uh, the economy is changing. The economy is doing uh, all this digital transformation and needs these new skills like collaboration, like uh, diversity. And if we are asking ourselves what's, hap what's happening in the education ecosystem? Well, in the education ecosystem, usually we have um, names like edX, Coursera, and MOOCs that are coming to our minds. But from my point of view, these MOOCs, well, at the beginning, they are evolving right now, but at the beginning, these MOOCs are only an automation of what is happening in the classroom. So you need one step more to do this. You need a digital transformation in education. So Xavier Niel was facing this uh, lack of IT professional for his own companies. And he did realize that public education wasn't able to fulfill this gap. So that's why he decided to create 42. Um, here you have a nice picture of one of our computer rooms. Um, we have three of them, almost uh, 1,000 computers in, uh, in our building. And it's in this play that our students are uh, spending most of the time uh, using our peer learning pedagogical model. But before explaining how, what is peer learning, uh, first, a few constraints. 
Well, actually, they are not constraints. Uh, we decided to have no degree requirement to apply. Anyone can apply. Anyone uh, older than 18 years old, 18 years old, can apply to 42. Also, we wanted to completely remove the tuition fees to have a school completely free for our students. Our goal is to attract and detect IT talent, regardless the school background and regardless the social background, as much as possible. Today, someone with a French high school degree, I don't know if it has talent for IT or not. So why should I care, have a look at the French high school degree? Maybe in 10 years or in 20 years, I don't know. But today, it's not the case. Also, if you read some uh, um, report, uh, PISA report from the OECD, uh, you can uh, see that uh, France is very bad in uh, having people from poor suburbs with um, low social background uh, who have access to higher education. So this is also a problem we wanted to uh, try to address uh, when creating 42. To detect IT talent, we decided to have a strong selection process. Today, you apply online and you start to complete online tests. And then after that, you have the second part of the selection process, which is called la piscine. It's a French word for swimming pool. It's an immersion uh, period of time, four weeks long. You are spending in our building, usually it's during summer. And during these four weeks, you will taste what is coding, because it's open to everyone. If you never uh, create a software before, well, you can apply, it's okay. And all the curriculum have been designed so you can progress into this curriculum. And, uh, but you don't know if you like it. So uh, this PC, this swimming pool, will help you to taste uh, what is coding and if you like uh, this kind of stuff. Also, you will be able to taste if you um, fit into our peer learning model. So what is our peer learning model? Today, 42, it's uh, almost 4,000 students. And our students, well, they have no lecture. They have no teacher. There is no online MOOC. There is no online lecture available. So what are they doing? Well, it's a 100% practice and project-based curriculum. Students are facing software development challenges. They need to create pieces of software. And to do that, they, their job will be to collect information, to gather this information, to test this information, and to try to figure out which information is true, false, irrelevant, or uh, maybe uh, completely outdated. Usually, they can't do this alone. So that's why it's called peer learning, and we tell our students, you will always need to collaborate. This is something very important for you. You need to talk with each other, with each other. Um, you will need to explain how do you understand the project, how do you think you can solve this project, uh, and at some point, what we want is here to create some collective intelligence. And hopefully, at the end of the debate, of the discussion, students will have new hypotheses that no one brought in the first time. This hypothesis will be tested again, and maybe they will be wrong, and students will need to debate again and to make some 
new experiments is definitely a try and fail and try again approach, an experimental approach. When a project is over, students are doing some peer evaluations, meaning that you will receive usually five different marks from other students of the community. And on your own, you will need from time to time to do some evaluation of others' projects. We also have a very strong gamification system. For example, when your project is over, it can be a failure. You will need to try again this project. If it's a success, you will unlock the next project of the curriculum. You also will earn some experience points. Experience points will sum up to have a dedicated profile with 17 skills and also experience will sum up so you can go through different levels. And when you reach, for example, level 5 or level 10, it will also unlock some new projects and some new branches. Actually, our students have a complete representation of the whole curriculum. This is what a student can see. It's its own visualization of all the different projects available. It's a little bit outdated. We have, I think, between five and ten other projects because it's always moving, it's always improving. Um, the green one are the projects that are a success. The red one, it's a project that you failed but you did not retry it yet. If it's in white, it's available. I'm not sure that the color contrast here uh, make this uh, visible. And if it's black, it means that you did not have still the requirement to access this project and it's still locked, so you need to uh, progress into the curriculum to have access to this project. All this gamification, well, it's for uh, some different reasons. Uh, first, it was not only experience points and level, but also currency, quest, badges, achievements, houses like in Harry Potter, and temporary missions, and we are still missing a Hall of Fame, and we are still missing some guilds, and it's also an ongoing process, improvement process of the gamification. What we want here is first act as a motivation lever, because part of our population are a geek, and well, all video game related stuff, it's interesting for them, so that's why uh, it acts like a as a motivation level for them. And also, we want to avoid failure stigmatization. If you are going to a, a video game store, uh, usually you know that when buying a video game, you will fail two or three times the first level. You know that you will fail ten, ten times the second level, and so on. And we want our students to be in the same state of mind, to have the same spirit, so they know that they will try and fail uh, solving the problem and the software development challenges we are giving to them. All this uh, curriculum um, have not been created five years ago, um, uh, because 42 have been created uh, five, five years ago. Um, it's a more longer um, reflection, uh, well, um, it's a more longer project over the last 25 years. 
And the initial uh, will was to uh, reach what is uh, happening in companies, because usually when you are working in companies, you do not have a teacher, you do not have lecture, and you need to create real piece of software um, to um, sell it to your customer. Uh, you always need to collaborate. Today, with this huge amount of data, it's uh, completely needed and mandatory to collaborate with a lot of different people from the different team, from the sales team, from the R&D team, from the law team, and so on. Um, by some ways, um, maybe what you are doing also can be connected to the work of different specialists in pedagogy. I'm thinking here about the different experiments of Sugata Mitra, um, the experiment of uh, um, Sébastien, uh, sorry, uh, Célestin Freinet, Maria Montessori, or Jean Piaget. Also, um, I've been told uh, several times that, uh, hey, what you are doing reminds me what I call natural way of learning. And indeed, if I'm trying to think about how a baby starts uh, to uh, walk, well, uh, usually we don't say to our baby, hey, please stop. First, I'm going to uh, give you a lecture about gravity, about how the forces apply on the legs, and then you will need to work, but at the first time, you can't uh, fail. It's not possible. Hopefully, it's not happening like this. Uh, and, uh, well, maybe by some way, I hope that what we are creating is a learning context that is... Uh, suitable for uh, the highest number of uh, students. Today, um, well, we have very good results. We have a lot of job and internship offers. Oh, I just forgot something on the previous slide, I'm sorry. Did I mention that our students are progressing at their own pace, on their own path? You saw the big graph. At some point, you have some branches, so students will unlock two, three, or four different projects at some point, and they will have some choice. They can definitely choose their own path on the big graph you saw earlier. Also, they can progress at their own pace, because um, it's um, important for some of them to have a part-time job starting from the beginning. So we designed the curriculum for three years, but some students did complete the curriculum in one year and a half, and other students plan from the beginning to complete the curriculum in five or six years because they have a part-time job, because they can only be in 42, uh, 30 hours a week, for example. Back to the companies and the results. We have a lot of job offers and a lot of internship offers. Um, we uh, also... Okay... Perfect. Of course, we are monitoring uh, feedbacks from companies. It's one of our main quality indicators. Uh, and so far, they are uh, very uh, outstanding. We also have some students who do not complete the curriculum. And they start and launch the career before the end of the curriculum. And it's OK uh, uh, for them. And uh, we are OK with this, too. And finally, uh, the companies are also telling us that we are indeed providing the expected skills for the digital transformation. Just some details about the skills. Well, of course, our students will develop some very classic IT skills. 
it's our main job, it's our main uh, topic of learning. They will know about algorithm, object-oriented programming, artificial intelligence, security, database, big data, and so on. But, well, maybe we think that it's not enough. And uh, there are a lot of training nowadays, a lot of boot camps that provide this kind of skills. Unfortunately, they will be outdated in five years and 10 years. So we decided designing our pedagogical model to also aim these skills. We want our students to be able to adapt. We want our students to collaborate, to solve problems. Actually, what we created in our in 42 is a learning context where students will face exactly what they will face during a 40 years long career. Solving new problems, finding new solutions for new kind of problems they will face. Because in five years and 10 years, well, problems will be different. I don't know today what I should have inside the curriculum in order to have a 40 years long sustainability of career of the career uh, career of for my uh, for my students, so that's why we decided to give them this kind of skills so they can always adapt and adapt in a self-learning and in a long lifelong learning uh, way. What we want to do is actually to develop an agile state of mind to be able to stay to face the unknown. Of course, we have a lot of connections with other schools, with a lot of company, with the complete ecosystem through different conferences, through a lot of hackathons. Uh, we are mixing our students with students from HEC, it's the most famous French business school. And during two weeks, they need to solve projects for an entrepreneur, for example. All this kind of connection, all this kind of relation with the ecosystem are very important. We are also, um, trying to do some um, experiments with Pôle emploi. It's a French unemployment office. And we have a team of people who are 50 years plus, who uh, need to, uh, who are completely um, out of the new IT ecosystem. So they need to be retrained. And we made this experiment, and so far it's uh, also a success. And finally, we have a completely dedicated way for our students to become entrepreneurs. So, in conclusion, I would say that, well, with 42, we definitely try to answer uh, this gap issue, this lack of IT professional in our e-economy, at least in France, and now in other countries, because we have uh, no more than eight campuses, and probably soon it will be twice this number. I think that it's important in the educational ecosystem to offer to uh, all the students a different pedagogical path. And I think that 42 is an example of what could be a digital transformation into education. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for that. That, I'm afraid, brings to the end of this session of actual speeches. But we'll be convening again at uh, 3.50 in Space 2, which is your chance to come back to us. So see you all there again at 3.50. Thank you. <laughs>